So welcome back to the Looking Glass Forum. We're here to discuss the emerging New World Order and to divulge the undisclosed details of our modern religio-cultic controversy and bring the forbidden knowledge that lies in darkness and through the open light of day. Lies are many, but the truth is one. Greetings and welcome back to the Looking Glass Forum. We're here to go into another in-depth interview, uh, an in-depth discussion, and a review of and a research into the historical facts of our world. And this particular episode is not an easy episode. And a lot of the episodes that came before it have kind of built us up to this point where we could begin to have some of the background knowledge and ask some of the kind of surface questions and discuss some of the more modern scandals in, in, in the news and going back, you know, several centuries sometimes, even back to the French Revolution um, and discussing the history of the American Revolution. And, and we've, we've done a lot of interesting delving inter- into interesting topics in order to get us ready to really to kind of break the ice, as they say, into where we're going to go into some of our topics. And so a lot of these topics are going to be challenging. They're going to be things that you probably never heard of before, and they're going to go into the perhaps the archaeological record. And we need to really explore ancient history from the past. We're going to go back before the time of Christ. Um, Some of this history is going to go back 1,500 years before that time. So we're talking about 3,500 years ago. So, in order to really get into this kind of complex and difficult discussion, we have to really begin right at the beginning. And the the topic really has to do with the subject of the titles of the Pope of Rome. And so, many times, I've heard people say that that this uh, that some of these episodes are anti-Catholic, and and I would have to disagree entirely. Uh, the word Catholic means universal or united, um, so I don't have a problem with the United or Universal Church of Christ. That sounds like a wonderful thing for a, a universal church of the gospel to be gathering together. My problem is with the Roman part. Okay, so I don't have a problem with you being in the Catholic Christian Church. My part, my problem is with the Roman Catholic church. Of course, you don't live in Rome. Maybe you do, but perhaps I think most of the people listening to these episodes don't live in Rome, and therefore the Church of Rome shouldn't necessarily have anything to do with their lives. Okay, We have pastors and bishops that are here in Florida, where I live, and the Church of Florida is perfectly good for me. So it's the idea of the Church of Rome installing its huge cathedrals all around the world and its bid for imperialism. So we're talking about the Empire of Rome that acts like a church. So this is somebody who builds its Roman churches all around the world and cedes all authority into the hands of the men there in Rome so that as if they're the directors and the controllers and the emperors of our Christian faith. And then we have, of course, the man of sin, as he's called, sitting there in the seat of, of Peter, as they like to claim, and he's sitting in a seat that is supposed to be in authority and in dominion over all bishops of the world, not only just all the other bishops and churches of the world, but all political governing leaders of the world. So all presidents and kings and all manner of different areas of the world all over the globe are supposed to be subjected to this papacy, to this man who sits in the old seat of Caesar and he 
sits in the, the seat of the Roman Empire and pretends not to be the Roman Empire, but instead pretends to be the Roman Universal Church and pretends as though he has the authority to direct all the authority and doctrine of our Christian faith. So these men have built up this papacy and the authority of this universal bishop, this this monarchical bishop, a bishop king, if you will, and as if his job is to dictate what are all the terms and beliefs of our of our doctrine are. So they even like to claim that they have the ability to change the word of God and change the scripture. So if the Pope declares that this is no longer a sin, that it's okay to participate in homosexual marriages and God smiles on it, then everyone is to believe that. Even though the scriptures haven't changed, they like to to change the, the ordinances of God. So they like to tell us that Sunday is the Sabbath now. I mean, in the Bible and for for many, many thousands of years, even into the time of Christ, um, Sabbath was Saturday. So, you know, the fourth commandment is important, and it determines that we should remember to to practice worshiping God on the Sabbath and keeping the, the Sabbath day holy and to remember it. That's the commandment. And somewhere along the way, centuries after the time of Christ, the men in the seat of the Pope decided that they liked Sunday better because Sunday had always been the Roman holiday. It had been the day of the week that Romans celebrated uh, the worship of the sun god, Helios, or however you like to put it. In, in Egypt, it was Ra, but the, the occult uh, fraternities have long worshipped the sun. Um, in, in the time when Israel was getting in trouble with Babylon, Babylon was worshipping the sun god. The Lord had told them not to do that. So this is kind of a recurring theme throughout history. So at some point, the papacy decided to change the, the day of worship, the Sabbath, to Sunday. So all the churches now seem to obey that, and they seem to practice Sunday as the church day, and Saturday is just kind of forgotten and goes by the wayside, except unless you're, you know, from a Jewish family or participating in the Jewish faith, then you have that memory, that memory of the ancient law, the ancient passages that tell us that Sabbath is the correct day when people take a rest and and take a day off and worship the Lord. So all that just to say that we are here in these episodes challenging the doctrine and the authority of the papacy, which is sitting at the center of the Vatican, which is sitting at the center of the Roman Church, which is sitting at the center of what the world would call Christianity today. And people like to conflate the two terms so that if you say that you're a Christian, then it must mean that you're a Roman Catholic. But there are other kinds of Christianity, Protestant forms of Christianity that don't recognize the authority of the Church of Rome over all the churches, and they don't recognize the authority of the papacy over all clergy and over all governments of the world. So you would think that the king of the United Nations would have to be the Pope because he's the supposedly sitting as the vicar of Christ. And we have to go into these topics and discuss how he got into that place where he thinks that he's reigning over the world in the seat of, of Jesus Christ. I, I don't think any of the other pastors here at my local church, down at the local Baptist church, would have the arrogance and the audacity to think that someday they might sit in the throne of Jesus Christ and rule over all men and all human creatures with the authority of God. I mean, they're there just to preach the word, to take care of the believers in that community, and to care for them, and they're not to have this pretense towards geopolitical power, controlling nations, and commanding kings and, and presidents what to do, and but that's exactly what the Roman papacy does. It pretends to be an innocent ministerial uh, work, an, an innocent pastoral uh, ministry there simply to preach the good word to the poor, like as if he was some kind of um, Francis of Assisi monk 
just doing good in the world. But that's far from the truth. The truth is that the, the Vatican Bank and the, the cardinals there in the Vatican are, are neck deep in world politics and effectuating the outcome of world banks and they're highly interested in motivating the move towards globalization and globalism towards a one world government which is it's what it always had been in the past for centuries there was just a one world government in their eyes where the pope sat on top of the the throne there what we're trying to do is really catalog this rise of the papacy into a world government originally i think that there was a church there in in Rome that developed after the time of Christ and ultimately there was a, a seat of a bishop or you know a high priest and they like to claim that there was the seat of, or the uh, the pastorship or the bishopric of Peter and then when Peter died it passed to someone else and then it passed to someone else so that it's just it's this lead bishop the head bishop of Rome there that's said to extend down from Peter that that they're claiming to have now but there's a lot of interesting details in the background regarding the occult power of the papacy and we really need to get into that history and, and to begin to explore what is really happening there that we have this this sovereign king and it's a literally a sovereign throne of a monarchy and in this monarchy sits in the seat of a high priest so he pretends to be the man who can absolve all the sins of the world through his apostolate and which you know breaks down into a matrix to the lower archbishops and archdiocese and the lower uh, priests that go out there and uh, say that they are absolving all the people of their sins and their confessionals so people come in and confess their sins and then you're I'm not many poetry, so I'm blah, 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 and you're, you know, they do their magic, and then you're absolved, and you just continue to do that. You don't stop sinning or turn away from your sins, but you just sin at will, and you have no fear because they'll absolve and make it go away. So this is the kind of doctrinal church structure that we're trying to to identify here, and it really doesn't come from the uh, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. These are not the things that, that he taught, and they're nowhere in the Bible, but these are ideas that are coming out of paganism from the ancient past. So we're going to have to look at ultimately Egypt, Babylon, Persia, and then later on the extension into the Roman Empire to understand how these idolatries these are per people who worship Jupiter and who worshiped various deities, Zeus, Apollo, Hades. And, and so these different cultures using different names are, are attaching their worship and their adoration towards these temples and towards these, these idols that were set up there. And famously in the Vatican is a large bronze sculpture of a person that they call Peter. But if you know your history, you know that this bronze statue of a man with a, with a sun disc around his head and a key in his hand is not, it, it actually predated the time of the Vatican so that it was actually a large idol of Jupiter. And it sat in the, in the temple of Jupiter. People worshipped it from ancient times. Uh, Roman The Roman society would come in and pay tribute and do the rituals of Jupiter in order for that deity to shine on their plans and give them fortune and so on and so forth. And later on, when it was useful to the Vatican, they just stuck it in inside the Vatican church and called it a statue of, of, of Peter. So that's really what we're in, in, a, in a large big picture way that's really what we're seeing we're seeing that the the roman priestcraft the esoteric ritualists that were worshiping these these idols and all these different false gods in the pantheon of rome would really take the old order of worship and continue it on and and they would uh, syncretize their religious practices into a system that they would call christianity and they would try to match it with christianity and ultimately you would see that happening in 
the holiday of December 25th. December 25th has been for thousands of years before the time of Christ. The uh, the worship of Saturn, who is the, the holy day of Baal. It was the, the uh, longest nights of the year when the sun god would be reborn. So in the temple of Helios, and even back to Egypt and the temple of Ra, they would do their blood sacrifices and their worship on December 25th. And later on, the Roman papacy would get involved and, and use these carnival weeks to their advantage by claiming that Jesus Christ was born on December 25th, and therefore all Christians should practice in that pagan worship as well. And then in this way, they united paganism with churchianity. So the people didn't have the scriptures, they didn't have any of the Bible stories or any of the knowledge, it was all in Latin. So the priestcraft and the cardinals and the papacy of Rome would direct all the ordination of Christian worship and the actual rites of the different archdioceses around the world, which operated really like a, a military hierarchy or a governing structure where you would have the one regent who is sent out there to the archdiocese. He's the archbishop and he's going to control all the lower bishops down to the different lay priests in the area. And their influence uh, over time and the local government was would become absolute. And so that in, in the medieval times, you really couldn't even have an, a governing king or monarchy in the area unless he was being directed and supported by the delegates and the prelates of Rome. And anyone who went against the Roman authority find themselves branded as heretics, and they would have to meet the Inquisition and go through the tortures and the absolute atrocities of that. Like we said in previous episodes, the, the various Inquisitions, the Spanish and the Roman and the different Inquisitions went on for just over six centuries of, of Vatican-led murder and torture in the name of, of God. So you can see that the, the Huguenots, and we, we can go all into the history of that, but many, perhaps hundreds of millions of people died throughout the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages due to the extreme brutality and the extreme uh, censorship, uh, the doctrines arising from the priests and then the authority being passed to the kings and the knights to come out and repress anything that, that the Vatican didn't like. So ultimately, that uh, the Dark Ages were a, a result of and a continuation for many centuries of that brutal, inhuman uh, policy that, that really kept civilization down and from being unable to develop science or learning. I mean, I think the papacy would go on to say that the earth was flat. I mean, they, they you know, like I said in previous episodes, Galileo almost met the Inquisition himself and had to retract his books because he tried to say that the earth was was a sphere. So as we begin to explore these, these topics, we have to understand how the hubris and the arrogance and the authority, the temporal and spiritual authority as a doctrinal governing philosophy came to Rome and how the papacy really began really as a, as a ministry to the poor and to the preaching of Jesus Christ and became a world power directing the kings of the earth like an Antichrist, and really, that's what the uh, the men of the Reformation described uh, as the Bishop of Rome. Is you know, he was supposed to be a humble missionary of the Lord, but he was really a king who was wealthier. Uh, sitting on a throne with a crown that was wealthier than all the other kings of Europe, and ultimately he would uh, direct the, the slaying of, of any any that he declared to be heretics, and he would ultimately raise armies to fight countries that wouldn't submit to his authority. And so he became a really profound mystery 
on the earth that you know that such a, a man, a pastor, could become a world emperor over all other men. And so we have to explore that the subject of his title, Pontifex Maximus, and later the superadded title uh, uh, at the time of Constantine, Vicarius Christi, which means the Vicar of Christ. So we have to do, understand what Pontifex Maximus and Vicarius Christi mean, and and how they really reflect the occult pagan mystery worship that goes back to Babylon and Egypt. In order to really break down these super complex subject matter that go over many centuries, they have to enlist different histories through different time periods. I have some references here that we can read that go back to the 17th and 18th century. Some of these books are going to be telling us information that was collected in 1858, for instance. So these are this is a wide subject matter. It's a large piece of the puzzle that we really need to take a look at as we're going forward. And in order to do that, I have this interesting little clip by Johnny Cerucci. And Johnny Cerucci's website is uh, really being blocked right now. He has his, his work, Resistance Rising, that he does, which I found very interesting. You can go on and find older episodes of his podcast. That's Johnny Cerucci, uh, C-I-R-U-C-C-I, Cerucci. And yeah, all of his stuff is totally bad right now. He hasn't put on a new podcast in, in months. And he when I go on to his LinkedIn, everything is just taken out. And I think there's a large-scale uh, technotronic censorship that's happening across Google and, and YouTube and, all the, and, and Twitter and so all these different media tech giants are kind of working in lockstep to just blank anybody out that they don't like. And I think that's what happened to him. I don't know. He's been deplatformed, right? So we have to recognize that that's the kind of environment we're in in order to discuss this information. It's not such a simple thing to do. These are ideas that are totally repressed. They're totally unacceptable. They're totally anti-religious or anti-Catholic. They're, they're, they're bigoted. These these ideas are, are really criticisms of a power structure that you're not allowed to criticize. So in this discussion, we'll have Johnny Cerucci with Greg Carrawood, and they're having this discussion, and I'll just, we're going to do a couple of those ex excerpts. Not necessarily faith or beliefs, but religion is one of the most powerful enslaving forces to humanity. And, and, and again, I'm saying this as, as a born again Christian, mm -hmm. um, but it's the it's the tenets of religion. It's when you surrender your will and unfortunately even your intellect to a human hierarchy. And and my my understanding of what it means to be a Christian is to do away with that. So that's why I'm saying that as a Christian is that religion is the most powerful force of enslavement, can make people do things uh, that they wouldn't normally do. And that's what breaks us down to who is at the top of the world power and, and where they behind. Historically, again, a few of the, the historical aspects of my own Christian faith is, uh, you know, we believe that Jesus Christ was a real person. Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross. He was uh, the son of God, uh, full, fully God, fully man. And so we as Christians believe that when he died on the cross, it was an amazing event. It freed us from religion, the, the religion of, of Judaism, the religion of obeying the Judaic laws, the Mosaic laws in order to, to not feel guilt and, and to be freed from sin and so forth. So um, really prior to that, even if you just look at the historical Jesus, you can make a case for uh, a combination of Jewish and Roman hierarchy as being the ones that put an end to the, the, uh, 
the Christian uprising, the Jesus uprising, because it was a threat to religious authorities. Mm -hmm. Because religion and the religious authorities had wielded such amazing control over people, over humanity. And when they saw this upstart saying, hey, you don't need religion anymore, you just need a relationship with me, that was extremely dangerous. And so we as Christians believe that uh, Christ freed us from those, those bonds of religion. And boy, within 500 years, there was an amazing, and this is this is historical fact, that the, the changes that occurred within the Roman Empire were uh, were powerful. Of course, Rome at the time of uh, uh, of the life of Jesus Christ, whether you believe that's historical or not, uh, was the most powerful uh, empire in the world, controlled the known world, and uh, was starting to wane within uh, 200 years after that. And by uh, 300 years, there were some conversions. There was a split uh, to, to the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, and the uh, the Christian sect, which is really considered an offshoot of Judaism, was heavily persecuted. Uh, we're all familiar with the the aberrations, abominations of Nero, of uh, covering Christians with pitch and using them to to light his gardens. Uh, the Christians in the Colosseum, you know, being thrown to uh, wild animals and lions and so forth. So, and it d- didn't stop. The faith, obviously, didn't stop the, that uh, Christians from being Christians. It actually helped them to, to grow and expand. And so we have the advent of, uh, of Emperor Constantine, who supposedly had this vision of seeing a symbol, a Christian symbol. It could be the Cairo. We're not really sure. But the Cairo is what the soldiers put on their shields, supposedly according to Constantine's instructions. He was told in this vision, by this sign shall you conquer. And at this time, uh, the Roman Empire was split. There were many factions. uh, And this was at the Battle of Milvian Bridge, where Constantine did win. Uh, and within a few short years, he had coalesced his power to become uh, Roman emperor. And, and, you know, we can say what we want about whether or not his vision was legitimate. He, he enacted some amazing reforms. He immediately stopped persecution of Christians. He stopped child sacrifice. He uh, stopped many abuse, uh, slavery abuses. And so these reforms really mark Constantine as either a convert or someone who is really politically savvy. I mean, really, previous to this, the, the emperors were considered gods mm-hmm. and could do any abuse that they wanted and did. And unfortunately, it was very uh, poisonous to, to the empire. But Constantine's reforms were powerful and worked to his favor. And so as a result, uh, he's, he's, he's marked in history uh, as a seminal figure. Now, many people get him confused with a later emperor, some some five emperors later, I think uh, ten years or so, Theodosius. Now, Theodosius is the one who made Christianity. He figured he'd take Constantine's reforms to the next level. Theodosius is the one who made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. Now, that's something rather different, because the Roman Empire was a a pagan empire based on a um, a menagerie of gods that can trace its roots back through Greece, Egypt, all the way back to Babylon and Chaldea. So what happens, Greg, with all of these gods and beliefs uh, when all of a sudden you're commanded to be Christian? Well, you don't. You have a lot of um, insincere conversions, mm-hmm. and so the result is uh, a syncretistic mix of all of those beliefs. 
And, uh, and unfortunately, I know there are 1.2 billion Catholics. When I mention this stuff, uh, I don't want to alienate any of, of our Catholics. There are some great Catholics uh, in my family. <laughs> I'm Italian, so that's my background. Uh, I just want to know, let them to know that the historical background of their faith, it, it has these roots, these origins, of uh, this, this mixing as a result of Roman authority of um, uh, Babylonian and Greco paganism with Christian beliefs. And unfortunately, that's, that's kind of where we're at with Roman Catholicism today. But that's not the issue as far as leadership and power. Um, it just is the roots of the return of religion and the chains that bind human beings. Uh, again, there's there's no greater binding, Greg, than, than what's in your own mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you are convinced that uh, your guilt, the guilt that you feel from your daily living and from what you understand as what's wrong versus you know sin, those things bind you down. You're told that there is a human hierarchy, a priesthood, that can release you from that, then we'll... we'll Boy, there's no more powerful force there. Right. Uh, and you, you might even have um, created um, conventions such as the idea of, uh, okay, well, when you die, of course, there's no way to verify this. When you die, you don't go to your judgment. You go into a place of holding. And um, we'll call this purgatory. And while you're in purgatory, you're waiting for what you're supposed to be receiving, your judgment. Now, we on the outside have the uh, ability to um, release you from purgatory, and if you give us a nice donation, uh, we'll do that. Mm-hmm. That's—I'll tell you, brother—that works. If, if you don't know any better, uh, that can be extremely powerful and painful. Yeah, and they're um, known as indulgences. And those were some of the things that the, uh, the, the, the Catholic religion practiced at the time. And I, I, we'll pick back up at Theodosius after he um, forced Christianity to become the state religion of the Roman Empire. By 500 AD, uh, you now had a conversion, a breakdown of the Roman Empire and a conversion into the Holy Roman Empire, where we have the, uh, the, the Bishop of Rome taking on the mantle of being the... Uh, the vicar of Christ on earth. Um, that certainly may not have been that that, uh, that strong an assertion in 580, but within a few centuries, that's exactly what it, what it was, to a perversion to the point where um, we now have the, the modern Bishop of Rome, the, the Pope, when he speaks ex cathedra, uh, he speaks on behalf of God, as God, and papal concordance that are written ex cathedra, do you know they, they actually capitalize the pronoun when the Pope writes, he writes with a capital H when he says he, and he's talking mm-hmm. about himself. Mm-hmm. So, wow, that is extremely powerful. So now you have these uh, abuses that start to occur as a result of the, the chains and the bonds of religion coming back on people who want to be Christians. Uh, from indulgences to um, uh, being excommunicated is extremely powerful. The kings around the world that were manipulated to do what papal authorities said under just the threat of excommunication. Right. Wow. Really powerful. Yeah. Uh, so um, you have now a, a religious authority growing in, in Rome, the, the, the conversion to, into the Holy Roman Empire, of being extremely powerful. King maker.
That will serve as a introduction into the subject matter that we're trying to get in here today. I mean, his conversation is over an hour long and, and with uh, Greg Carrollwood and Johnny Cerucci, and I just advise you to get time to go listen to that conversation, and it will give you a, a really good history and outline of the occult power structure that exists around the world and the masquerades as religion. And I want to go a little bit further. There's another uh, interesting excerpt in this conversation that we're going to go ahead and play just to get it out of the way and establish an introduction into really the background uh, history and as a good notation for the, 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 the further references that we're going to make in this episode. And I think that we might end up having a, a second episode you know, to, to go along with this because there's so much material. So th again, this is Greg Carrollwood, Johnny Cerucci, and this is a second excerpt in, of that conversation. Stuff, is that going to shake you up? Is that going to scare you? You're going to stop what you're doing, or you're going to drive on and do what you're supposed to do and do the right thing? We, we talked about this before we started the show. You have a program. You have advertisers. They're Suddenly, they're very lucrative. You've got everything you want. You don't have to worry about paying your bills. You've got a great show. All you have to do is not touch certain topics. You're going to go with that? You're going to obey what they tell you to do? Or you're going to, you're going to spread truth to your audience? Right. You know? That's definitely a problem for most shows. I'm very lucky that I have no advertisers, uh, so I've escaped that trap. But you're right. That's the very reason I can't have advertisers is exactly what you're talking about. Well, and here, and, and here it is that when you had this shot heard around the world to take us back to Wittenberg and bring us into the present uh, of, of people saying, wait a minute. I don't need a Catholic priest to absolve me of my sins. I don't trust a Catholic priest with my kids. I don't trust a Catholic priest to pray my dead father out of purgatory. All I need is the Bible and my language, and I'm going to go straight to the throne of God by myself. That is revolutionary. It's exactly what it was, the Protestant Reformation, the shot heard around the world, the most dangerous thing that happened to this system of control by religion in 1517. And as a result of this, you had a uh, what is now known as the, the Counter-Reformation. Uh, we had a young Basque, Spanish Basque noble named um, uh, Ignacio Lopez. And he was a, uh, a, a prince and was involved in uh, the wars between Spain and France. And uh, Pamplona, in the Battle of Pamplona, his leg was uh, shattered by cannonball. And so his dreams of glory and uh, martial accomplishments were shattered. And as a result, he was uh, uh, devastated. He, he could no longer be a soldier, but he was extremely focused and dedicated and wanted that life. He um, pulled himself into contemplation and believed that he had a vision of the, the Virgin Mary and took this vision to monks in Montserrat and prostrated himself before what is known as the... Um, the, the Black Virgin of Montserrat. Now, again, not to um, offend our, our Catholic brothers and sisters, but a lot of this iconography can trace itself back to the worship of Isis and Semiramis. Mm -hmm. When you watch a movie and you see the the goddess Columbia come up, she looks like the Statue of Liberty. Right. That's, that's the same person, Isis, Semiramis, the goddess of wisdom. Columbia Pictures. 
Absolutely. But you've got you've got the globe of Universal Pictures and you've got the goddess of wisdom in Columbia and Columbia Pictures. In District of Columbia. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly up. what that's all about. Yeah. It's about worship of the goddess of wisdom and reason. Uh, and, and, and this goes back to this legend of, uh, of Nimrod. And, and this legend was retranslated into uh, Osiris and Isis of this great rebel that was going to lead people uh, against the oppression of God and build this first great empire. Uh, and uh, build the Tower of Babel, reach to the sky, which now, if we consider the uh, this flat Earth paradigm, uh, maybe reach to the top of the dome. Who knows? <laughs> but um, we we have this legend of this first great powerful rebel leader, who, according to legend, was eventually uh, uh, captured and judged by a son of of Noah. It was. Um, uh, Shem was the, the son who was by legend, captured uh, Nimrod and executed him for apostasy and, and cut him into pieces as a warning against uh, all future apostates, scattered them all on the waters. The legend varies based on who's telling it. Poor Osiris was captured by his brother Set, the evil brother Set. You see the similarities there. Right. Uh, Set was the bad guy. Versus the previous legend where Shem was the good guy. Now we've reversed the roles. Osiris is the good guy. Set is the evil brother. Uh, murdered his brother Osiris. Cut him into pieces and scattered him across the Nile. Well, his dutiful and loyal wife, Semiramis, was the dutiful and loyal wife of Nimrod. Uh, Isis was the dutiful and loyal wife of uh, Osiris tried to put his pieces back together because she really missed her husband. Unfortunately for her, she couldn't find his private parts. Look out. I'm not making this up. Oh, I know. So the part depends on the legend. One legend says that the um, the fish god Dagon found his parts and brought them to her. Another legend says that she created them herself. The bottom line is, is we have this queen who had a pregnancy, and she wanted to explain this pregnancy by a miraculous interaction right and so this is supposedly what this interaction is and the, the the result was the birth of a messianic child for the uh nimrod semiramis uh connection that child was tammuz who was supposedly a reincarnation of nimrod for uh the egyptian version it's horus horus was a reincarnation of his father osiris and he went to avenge himself of his father's murder uh by battling set and there's all kinds of weird things that happen there mm -hmm. but this is where all that legend comes from so that is just kind of a very interesting little take and it's just a small part of the conversation that they're having and he does a really kind of sweeping narrative on the history of the roman papacy and the background connections that really go back long before the time of Rome. So what we're going to really begin to get into in these in this episode is bringing you the kind of political, religio-cultic dynamics that were in play that led up to the the rise of the Roman Church. And of course, we're obviously making the connection between the Roman, uh, the, the legacy of Roman Empire 
that's like as far as the Caesars, like Julius Caesar, and how that connects to the the current Pope of Rome and, and a continuous and unbroken chain of succession. And so we're going to elaborate the background history of that occult throne. And so it's really a, a process of an esoteric initiation. And a lot of people who go to church and read their Bible are holding, uh, when they hold the Bible in their hands, the key to all the occult knowledge, because the Bible itself is central in understanding the, the history of Egypt and Babylon, and the people of God, the people of Israel, who are so hated by the occult, and we can see that manifested in the current political modern era, in this kind of sense of anti-Semitism, or anti-Zionism, so that people out there who have tried to educate themselves about the matter of, of, of a global tyranny in the world, have got themselves to to be learning about the Rothschild banking families or the idea that, um, like Hitler had, that there was a, a cartel or a, a cabal of Jewish overlords that were controlling the world and that the Jews were the enemies. And so you're seeing this kind of replicated again in the, in the modern ideology with Black Lives Matter and Antifa here in America and other radical leftist groups who um, who are really blaming the Jews for the problems of the world, inciting you know large banking families like the Rothschilds and trying to make a connection there with the world conspiracy. And it really goes back to a book called The Learned Elders of Zion, which we talked about before a little bit, but the, uh, the communists you know, like Stalin and the nationalists, socialists like Hitler took advantage of this uh, writing, which was um, describing a conspiracy to rule the world and to poison people and to eliminate uh, the the people of the world and, and it was linked to supposed Zionists or Jewish overlords. So that's where you're going to get this sense of recrimination and uh, anti-Semitism, hatred against the Jewish people that's so popularized because it's in the lower common classes of, of knowledge, people who really don't have an academic understanding of history and who just really read the kind of controversial magazines that stir up the people propaganda uh, like Hitler used to describe the Jewish people as rats who, who are subhumans who need to be eliminated. This is the kind of basic thinking that goes into uh, the castigation of a people and to get people to, to hate them. And it really comes from an, an occult level. And if you go back in time and look at the Babylonian, the Egyptian empire, their uh, occult systems of sun worship was really interrupted by the God of the Jews. So you got back into the Bible, uh, Pharaoh had to let the Jews go from slavery and they suffered 10 plagues and Babylon itself was ultimately destroyed when it tried to uh, have the Jewish people in captivity uh, the Babylonian Empire was destroyed by the Persian uh, media empire that rose up and just destroyed it. Ultimately, there is a, a sense of a curse that goes along with this esoteric pagan history. So at the time when Babylon was destroyed, they had actually brought out some of the temple instruments, the things that when they had conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple around five or 600 BC, they took with them the, uh, the different altars and the different um, the bronze pool and the, the, the different instruments that were inside the, uh, the the temple of God there in Jerusalem, they took them back to Babylon and they brought them out in one particular night of celebration, which was December 25th, when they had their high uh, pagan mass, their pagan celebrations there in Babylon, they would... Um, bring out these temple instruments, these temple relics from, uh, and, and bring them out to, to just parade them in front of their, of their party and to 
basically de declare their authority of their gods, um, the Babylonian gods over the God of Israel. So at that time, that's when suddenly uh, the, the secret attack of the Persians under Cyrus and Darius they came together and they redirected the rivers. The waters of the Euphrates River were redirected and channeled down, uh, upstream so that the, the water level was lowered downstream where it went underneath the city and they were able to bring their troops and march them through the river in the quiet of night and they captured the city of Babylon and brought down the Babylonian Empire overnight before they even realized what had happened. And of course they were all celebrating and um, it was at that very hour in the Bible when the, the king of Babylon saw the writing on the wall and his kingdom was over and it was the rise of the Persian Empire. So there was a, a, a passing down of the torch of, um, of, of the occult priestcraft over time to, from one uh, empire to another. And that's how we see the rise of this occult throne in the Roman Empire much later on with uh, Julius Caesar. And uh, he was the one who famously took up the title Pontifex Maximus. And we're going to talk about that more. And um, he was ultimately the one who became the first emperor of Rome. So before that, it was a republic of elected officials. And there was proconsuls and consuls and, and generals and different men. But they were under the control of the democratic voting process there in the Senate. And after Caesar came in, he pretty much broke that democratic process and became the imperator or the sole uh, ruler of Rome. And ultimately, the, uh, the senators, the college of the senators there, just became a secondary instrument underneath his authority. And ultimately, when he was 44 years old, they did stab him to death there in the Senate and kill him. But the man who came after him, Augustus Caesar, uh, that was the name that he took, would ultimately carry on this, this dictatorship of Caesar and pass it on down. So it was an, imp an imperial authority that was passed down to another successor after Julius Caesar was killed. And so ultimately, the, the senators didn't get rid of their new tyrant king, but they just brought him, you know, they just passed on to the secondary, the second in authority and the second in line there. And it would just go on down the line. And ultimately, Constantine would be the emperor of Rome three centuries later. And so it's out of this, this dictatorship and this seizure of temporal power that Julius Caesar took that he, that the papacy is rising out of. It's out of it's that seat of authority. And they say that it's the seat of Peter and they, they have all these super added um, religious concepts that they try to overlay over top of the, the papacy, but really it's the same authority that that was developed by Julius Caesar. And remember that Julius Caesar ultimately became a, a political, a geopolitical authority and a king with a sovereign governing power, but he also was a high priest. And when he took on the mantle of Pontifex Maximus, he took on the mantle of the occult initiation, the esoteric priestcraft, making him the high priest over the Babylonian system. And the way that happened was was pretty remarkable. The the priest kings, the, the high priests of Babylon were ultimately driven out of Babylon when Cyrus and Darius, the United Kingdom, the Medo-Persian Empire, came in and knocked the Babylonians out of power. They ultimately drove their system of cult religion out of the city and it fled and took up new regency and took up a new and set up its enthronement in an area in Turkey called in a city called Pergamos. And if you look up this history, the occultists out there, I mean as Christian Bible believers, you might know nothing about the, these kind of concepts, but the the occultists out there who follow 
these bloodlines, um, they take it very seriously. So they know very well that the priest kings of Babylon didn't just go away when Persia took over their, their city of Babylon, but they, they receded and took up and set up a new seat of worship and a new temple in Pergamos. So in this way, they carried on their uh, esoteric priestcraft and they carried on their title of Pontifex Maximus, which means priest king or high priest uh, over the uh, the kingdom of Babylon. And really, it was passed down over time from Babel. Ultimately, it's the it's the the, the uh, superiority and authority of the throne of Nimrod that was ultimately established and recreated there in Babylon, and and that was set up in Pergamos in the area of Turkey. I have an interesting book here in front of me. It's called uh, European History Foretold by Harold Hemingway, and it was in 2007. And he has an interesting little write-up here about the whole subject matter. And um, we'll go ahead and just put this excerpt in here. And it talks about how the high priest of the Babylonian religion was the original Pontifex Maximus. Nimrod, the king of ancient Babylon, had been both king and high priest, or Pontifex Maximus. And when Belshazzar was slain and the Chaldeans were defeated by Darius the Mede, the Babylonian priests were expelled and they moved their college, central college, to Pergamos, where the serpent worship of Asclepius, the child of the incarnate sun, would continue on. The king of Pergamos dressed in scarlet and purple. He wore the mitre of Dagon, the fish god, and held the crozier of Nimrod and the keys of Sibyl and Janus, whose sacred bird was the rooster. The last of the original Babylonian priests was King Attalus III, Pontifex Maximus of Pergamus, and at his death he bequeathed the priestly title and his dominions to the Roman people in 133 BC. Thus, Phrygia became part of the Roman Empire in 133 BC, as Roman Emperor Julius Caesar accepted the title about 63 BC, and the Roman emperors from that time were called Pontifex Maximus up to 375 AD, where Emperor Gratian, being a nominal Christian, renounced it and transferred the title and paganisms to the Bishop of Rome, Pope Damascus, who accepted it. And to the present time, calls himself Pontifex Maximus. Therefore, Augustine wrote that Rome was founded as the second Babylon and as the daughter of the former Babylon. Babylon is another name for Rome. So that's page 96. And that's just a little excerpt that we can quickly find um, when we're doing our research here on the internet. And it really begins to tie back the ancient practices and the priestcraft of the pagan system of goddess worship and, and worship of the pantheon of mythology that goes back into Egypt and Babylon and as it was passed on over time, ultimately to Rome. So these titles and these authorities of these these uh, occult priesthoods were continued on despite the fact that we don't have very much information in our current history books about it. If you look, especially in the annals and the chronicles of the Freemasons and other occult organizations, they keep really, really good records of all this stuff. In order to really look at this information correctly, we have to understand that the the Freemason Lodge is, is a very secret society, and not a lot is known about how they operate unless you really join with them, but it is well known that inside, in their their temple proceedings, in their, on their altar, they have three main lights of the lodge, or three main books that they put on top of the, the altar there, and one of them is the Quran, and one of them is the Talmud, that has really to do with the Kabbalah 
and ultimately, which is a, a Jewish mysticism, and the other one is the King James Version 1611 Bible. And so there's these three, what they consider to be occult books, there on their on their altar, and the Kabbalah goes back to Egyptian and Babylonian magic, and Islam, their, their Quran there, has to do with the histories that of the, the Muslim religion, and ultimately the King James Version Bible is the 1611 printing of the Septuagint or in the Torah and the New Testament. And ultimately, when they look through the history of the Old Testament there, they see written the, the struggle with Pharaoh and Yahweh and the plagues and in the beginning the, the development of the Tower of Babel. So Freemasons include the book of the Bible on their on their lodge altar. So through their orders like the Shriners, ultimately Freemasonry is going to to honor and pray to and adore the God of Islam, Allah, along with all their gods, because they're a universal system of religion, a universal temple. And they recognize all these religions as a central centralized system of universal worship. And so in, in their minds it's a interfaith dialogue that leads all religions to the same God. Similarly, we understand that the Jehovah is a God that demands that he be worshipped alone and he is the only God and that we are to be separated to his ministry and his service and to leave all other gods and all other religious ideologies behind. In order to further kind of elucidate this information about the occult throne and about Pontifex Maximus, we're going to go ahead and listen to this very fascinating conversation here. Brian Wilson reveals the ancient origin of the title Pontifex Maximus, currently held by the Bishop of the Roman Catholic Church. Pontifex Maximus. On June 6th, Pope Francis, aka Pontifex Maximus, gave a message to the Catholic Media Conference, sponsored by the Catholic Press Association, where he addressed the role of the media worldwide. Quote, We need media capable of building bridges, defending life, and breaking down walls. This wasn't the first time Pope Francis has discussed building bridges. In response to President Trump's efforts to end drug smuggling, slow human trafficking, and secure the United States' southern border by building a wall and bolstering fences, the current Pope said, quote, A person who thinks only about building walls, wherever they may be, and not building bridges, is not a Christian. This is not the gospel. Although the Vatican has its own massive walls surrounding the entire city, which is also its own national political entity, a sovereign nation. Why does the Pope talk about building bridges? One reason may be that the official title of the Pope, Pontifex Maximus, literally means greatest bridge builder, proclaiming that the Pope controls the pathway from earth to heaven, when in fact, in the doctrine of true Christianity, Jesus is the door and the way to heaven, to true communion with God, not by some pope. So who and what is Pontifus Maximus? This priestly title can be traced back in different forms to the ancient Chaldean times and to Babylon, when Medo-Persia conquered Babylon and overthrew Belshazzar in 539 BC. The pagan priests of Babylon were driven out of Medo-Persia and established themselves at Pergamon, taking with them their titles and vestures, the primary one being the name and dress of Pontifex Maximus. The 
last pontiff king of Pergamum was Attalus III, who bequeathed the title Pontifus Maximus to the emperor of Rome in 133 BC, which ended the history of Pergamum as an independent political entity. The Roman emperor then carried the title Pontifus Maximus for a few hundred years. In 322 AD, Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity but kept the pagan title Pontifus Maximus. In an effort to unite his empire, Constantine blended the interests of pagans and Christians in a gradual transference that ultimately compromised Christ's message. Almost a hundred years later, in 431 AD, Christian Emperor Gratian refused the title of Pontifus Maximus because he thought it was contrary to his Christian beliefs. And the title of greatest bridge builder was then taken over by Damascus, Bishop of Rome. This is when the Pope officially became Pontifus Maximus, inheritor of the priestly title from pagan Babylon. The papacy built bridges all right. They built bridges from ancient Babylon to pagan Rome, to the time of Christ and Christianity, all the way until the Roman Catholic Church was established, the Vatican. So with Pope Francis as the current Pontifus Maximus, where to exactly is he building bridges today? In his address to the media on June 30th, Pope Francis also said, quote, E pluribus unum, the ideal of unity amid diversity reflected in the motto of the United States, must also inspire the service you offer to the common good. Common good? What does this mean to the Pontifus Maximus? As Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic priest and philosopher, stated in 1265, quote, The possession of all things in common is the natural law. Whatever certain people have in superabundance is due, by natural law, to the purpose of succoring the poor. In other words, private property doesn't exist, and the state should redistribute possessions. This is substantiated in Pope Leo XIII's 1891 Rerum Novarum, which states, quote, It lies in the power of a ruler to benefit every class in the state. Since it is in the province of the commonwealth to serve the common good, all citizens, without exception, can and ought to contribute to that common good. Moving forward through time, Pope Pius XI laid out in 1931, quote, Under fascism, property owners may keep their property, titles, and deeds, but the use of their property is, as Leo XIII wrote, common. The Jesuit magazine, Civilita Catolica, even plainly states, quote, Fascism is the regime that corresponds most closely to the concepts of the Church of Rome. The Second Vatican document, Gaudium et Spes, originally published in 1973, says, quote, The complex circumstances of our day make it necessary for public authority to intervene more often in social, economic, and cultural matters. So does the Vatican, led by the Pontifus Maximus, see its goal and duty to intervene in public authority by influencing the media to help build a bridge from the present into a fascist future where states distribute all property among their people? Why is the Pope recruiting the media to help build his bridge? And where will his bridge ultimately take humanity? To heaven? Or does Pope Francis intend to build heaven on earth? A fascist communist paradise? If so, I'm afraid failure is all he's building a bridge toward. Because the only 
Heavenly Father of Heaven is God, as Matthew 23.9 clearly states. Call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. This is Brian Wilson with InfoWars.com. There we have Brian Wilson, and he's helping here to establish the, the background, history, and some of the, the nomenclature that we're going to need to learn, some of the uh, kind of occult vernacular that will help us to understand the, the terminology and to explicate our understanding of this kind of deep-rooted historical analysis. And, and in today's popular um, culture, in today's, you know, we have um, an MTV-driven, you know, hip-hop culture society with YouTube videos and, and Twitter and Instagram. And, and so people are really too interested in the historical breakdown of where we're at today. And I think that's kind of by design Ultimately, we're being dumbed down as a generation and just kind of fed crap all day long. And so it really, it takes a lot of work to kind of get to some of these root discussions and get to these, these the, the historical analysis with ancient history. And so I think that the, the Old Testament, um, the Word of God, the Bible, as it were, really does a, a great service in establishing for us a timetable and a kind of northern star so that we can, a, a, a polar north that can help us, guide us through this wilderness experience here in our lives where we're trying to understand ultimately what is what is our heritage what is our history what is the the construct of spiritual warfare that we're really waging waging this battle for our freedom and we have to understand that how america began as a country of that was demanding freedom and liberty and independence from the old order of pretended monarchy and uh, the throne and altar and the the universal church system of Rome that had wreaked so much havoc and Inquisition and Dark Ages over the earth. And as these men were coming out of the Renaissance and we had the Gutenberg printing press printing out pamphlets and new ideas and, and men like uh, Sir Isaac Newton and before and Galileo would really challenge the, the status quo with new ideas. Ultimately, we, we've got to this point in our history where we've developed intellectually and developed medicine and science and art. And uh, we, now we have quantum computing, and we have artificial intelligence. And we didn't get there by having the uh, magisterium of Rome and their hierarchy of geopolitical priestcraft, which sits in authority over all the world. Um, we got it by breaking away from the megalomaniacal ecclesiastical authority of the papacy and their absolute dictatorship over temporal and spiritual power, and by establishing a new free republic where every man had the rights and protections of the law. And when the American intellectual and revolution of political independence broke out, it really was the shot that was heard around the world so that uh, it was supported by France and their efforts to be free. And it was supported by um, all people around the world who wanted to have freedom and away from the absolute autocracy of czars and monarchs and Caesars and papal thrones and uh, inquisitors who were there to pull out your fingernails until you recanted or get burned at the stake. And so we have, you know, the, the, the history, they kept really good records and we have, we'll do an episode on that on the Inquisition later, but there are really millions and millions and millions of people over the centuries who, who met their end by such a brutal fate, having the, uh, the crucifix shoved in their face on a long stick as they were burned to death in the name of God. And so this is the bloody and black history of the Roman papacy. And we need to understand how it is that they got to be such an influence and such an absolute world power and how their, their skills at 
empire building came into play and where this, this occult priestcraft of Rome that pretended like a wolf in sheep's clothing to be a Christian mission, how it became a world system of control and tyranny. I had a little excerpt from Alexander Hislop's book, and we'll just go ahead and start to read here a little bit. If there are any who imagine that there is some occult and mysterious virtue in an apostolic secession that comes through the papacy, let them seriously consider the real character of the Pope's own orders and of those of his bishops and clergy. From the Pope downwards, all can be shown to be known to be radically Babylonian. The College of Cardinals, with the Pope at its head, is just the counterpart of the pagan College of Pontiffs, and with its Pontifex Maximus, or Sovereign Pontiff, which had existed in Rome from the earliest times, and which is known to have been framed on the model of the grand original Council of Pontiffs at Babylon. The Pope now pretends to have the supremacy in the Church as the successor of Peter, to whom it is alleged that our Lord exclusively committed the keys of the Kingdom of Heaven. But here is an important fact that Till the Pope was invested with the title, which for a thousand years had had been attached to it, the power of the keys of Janus and Sybil, no such claim to preeminence or anything approaching to it was ever publicly made on his part, on the ground of this, of his being the possessor of the keys bestowed on Peter. It was only in the second century before the Christian era that the worship of Sybil under that name was introduced into Rome. But the same goddess under the name Cardia, with the power of the key, was worshipped in Rome, along with Janus, ages before. And this is a quote by Ovid. So this is going back to a Roman poet in order to establish the, the mythology of the gods there. As we continue, very early indeed did the Bishop of Rome show a proud and ambitious spirit. But for the first three centuries, their claim of superior honor was founded simply on the dignity of their see, as being that of the imperial city, the capital of the Roman world. When, however, the seat of the empire was removed to the east, and Constantinople threatened to eclipse Rome, some new ground for maintaining the dignity of the Bishop of Rome had to be sought. That new ground was found when, about 378, the Pope fell heir to the keys that were the symbols of two well-known pagan divinities at Rome. Janus bore a key and Sybil bore a key. These are male and female counterparts. And these are two keys that the Pope emblazons on his arms as the insignias of his spiritual authority. Now, the Pope came to be regarded as wielding the power of these keys will appear in the sequel, but that he did, in the popular apprehension, became entitled to that power at that period refer referred to is a certain thing. Now, when, we, when he had come, in the estimation of the pagans, to occupy the place of the representative of Janus and Sybil, and therefore to be entitled to bear the, these keys, the Pope saw that if he could only get it believed among the Christians that Peter alone had the power of the keys, and that he was Peter's successor, then the sight of these keys would keep up the delusion, and thus, through the temporal dignity of Rome as a city, would decay and his own dignity as the Bishop of Rome would be more firmly established than ever. On this policy, it is evident that he acted. Some time was allowed to pass away, and then when the secret working of the mystery of iniquity had prepared the way for, for it all, for the first time did the Pope publicly assert his preeminence as founded on the keys given to Peter. About 378, 
AD was he raised to the position which gave him, in pagan estimation, the power of the keys referred to. In 432, and not before, did he publicly lay claim to the possession of Peter's keys. This surely is a striking coincidence. While nothing but judicial infatuation can account for the credulity of the Christians in regarding these keys as emblems of an exclusive power given by Christ to the Pope through Peter, it is not difficult to see how the pagans would rally around the Pope all the more readily when they heard him found his power on the succession of Peter's keys. The keys that the Pope bore were the keys of a Peter well known to the pagans initiated in the Chaldean mysteries. That Peter, the Apostle, was ever Bishop of Rome has been proved again and again to be an errant fable. That he ever even set foot in Rome is of the best highly doubtful. His visit to the city rests on no better authority than that of a writer at the end of the second century and around the beginning of the third, the author of the work called The Clementines, who gravely tells us that on the occasion of his visit, finding Simon Magus there, the apostle challenged him to give proof of his miraculous or magical powers, whereupon the sorcerer flew up into the air and Peter brought him down in such haste that his leg was broken. All historians of repute have at once rejected the story of the apostolic encounter with the magician as being destitute of any contemporary evidence, but as the visit of Peter to Rome rests on the same authority, it must stand or fall along with it, or at least it must be admitted to be extremely doubtful. But while this is the case with Peter the Christian, it can be shown to be by no means doubtful that before the Christian era, and downwards after there was a Peter at Rome who occupied the highest place in the pagan priesthood, Peter Magus, or Simon Magus. The priest who explained the mysteries to the initiated was called by a Greek term the Hierophant, but in a primitive Chaldean term, the real language of the mysteries, his title as pronounced without the points was Peter, the interpreter. As the revealer of that which was hidden, nothing was more natural than that, while opening up the esoteric doctrine of the mysteries, he should be decorated with the keys of the two divinities whose mysteries were unfolded. Thus, we may see how the keys of Janus and Sybil would come to be known as the keys of Peter, the interpreter of the mysteries. Yea, we have the strongest evidence that in countries far removed from one another and far distant from Rome, these keys were known by the initiated pagans not merely as the keys of Peter, but as the keys of Simon Magus identified with Rome. In the Eleusian mysteries at Athens, when the candidates were initiated, they were instructed to in the secret doctrine of paganism. The explanation of that doctrine was read to them out of a book called, by ordinary writers, the book Petroma. That is, as we are told, a book formed of stone. But this is evidently just a play upon words, according to the usual spirit of paganism intended to amuse the vulgar. Now, to this Janus, as mediator, worshipped in Asia Minor and equally from earlier times in Rome, along the government of the world. And all power in heaven and earth and the sea, according to pagan ideas, were vested in him. In this character, he was said to have just verdante cardinus, the power of turning the hinge, of opening the doors of heaven, or opening or shutting the gates of peace or war upon the earth. The Pope, therefore, when he set up as the high priest of Janus, 
assumed also this just for Dante Cardenas, the power of turning the hinge, of opening and shutting, in blasphemous pagan sense, the gates of heaven. Slowly and cautiously at first was this power asserted, but the foundation being laid steadily century after century was the grand superstructure of priestly power erected upon it. The pagans who saw what strides under papal directions, Christianity as professed in Rome, was making towards paganism were more than content to recognize the Pope as possessing this power. They gladly encouraged him to rise step by step to the full height of the blasphemous pretensions befitting the representative of Janus. Pretensions which, as all men know, are now, by the unanimous consent of Western Apostle Christendom, recognized as inherent in the office of the Bishop of Rome. To enable the Pope, however, to rise to the full plenitude of power, which he now asserts the cooperation of others was needed, when his power increased, when his dominion extended, and especially after he became a temporal sovereign, the, the key of Janus became too heavy for his single hand. He needed some to share with him the power of the hinge. Hence his privy counselors, his high functionaries of state who were associated with him in the government of the church and the world, got the now well-known title of cardinals priests of the hinge. This title had been previously borne by the high officials of the Roman Empire, who as Pontifex Maximus had been himself a representative of Janus, and who delegated his power to servants of his own power. Even in the reign of Theodosius, the Christian emperor of Rome, the title of cardinal was borne by his prime minister. But now both the name and the power implied in the name have long since disappeared from all civil functions of temporal sovereigns, and those only who aid the Pope in wielding the key of Janus in opening and shutting are known by the title of cardinals or priests of the hinge. I have said that the Pope became the representative of Janus, who it is evident when none other than the Babylonian Messiah, if the reader only considers the blasphemous assumption of the papacy, he will see how exactly it was copied from its original. In the countries where the Babylonian system was most thoroughly developed, we find the sovereign pontiff of the Babylonian god invested with the very attributes now described to as to the Pope. Is the Pope called God upon earth, the vice God, the vicar of Jesus Christ, the king in Egypt who was a sovereign pontiff, Pharaoh, as the, the historian Wilkinson points out, regarded with the highest reverence as the representative of the divinity on earth. Wilkinson shows that the king had the right by enacting laws and managing all the affairs of religion and the state, which proves him to have been a sovereign pontiff. Are kings and ambassadors required to kiss the Pope's slipper? This, too, is copied from the same pattern from, says Professor Gossin, quoted Strabo and Herodotus, the kings of Chaldea bore on their feet slippers, which the kings they conquered used to bow and kiss. In kind is the Pope addressed by the title of Your Holiness, so also was the pagan pontiff of Rome. The title seems to have been common to all pontiffs. Sycamus, the last pagan representative of the Roman emperor as sovereign pontiff, addressed one of his colleagues or fellow pontiffs on the step of promotion he was about to obtain. He said, I hear that Your Holiness, Sanctium Teum, is to be called by the sacred letters. Peter's keys have now been restored to their rightful owner. Peter's chair must also go along with them. The far-famed chair came from the very same quarter as the cross keys. The very same reason that led the Pope to assume the Chaldean keys naturally led him also to take possession of the vacant chair of the pagan Pontifex Maximus. As the Pontifex, by virtue of his office, 
had been the Hierophant or the interpreter of the mysteries, his chair of the office was also entitled to be Peter's chair as the pagan keys to be called the keys of Peter. And so it was called accordingly. So that is just another excerpt from a book called The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. And it really gives us a good sense of the background understanding of the history that's kind of coming up to us through the centuries. And we're really beginning to basically divulge the existence of an occult priestcraft, an occult throne, and an occult high priest that comes out of the, the system of Babylonian magic and idolatry. As we begin to examine this pagan title, Pontifex Maximus, it begins to bring to light really the the the, the mystery religions like Mithraism and the occult priestcraft that was operating in the background of ancient history through many centuries. And ultimately, we can see that this system of the hierophant or the high priest or the the all powerful priest king, the ultimate high priest dictator over all the world, would drive the the, the rise of empires. So ultimately. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebu was the god that he was named after. Nebuchadnezzar was ultimately a deity, just like uh, Pharaoh in Egypt. He was a high priest and a king. He, he received worship and absolute obedience and directed his armies and governed the land. And he was ultimately the in the throne of the cult. So everyone would, would really direct worship uh, at him. And this is ultimately what Alexander the Great was after when the Greek kingdom was just, would come up and create its uh, military advance under Alexander the Great and would bring down the Persian Empire. Ultimately, Alexander the Great would establish himself as a divine figure, and he would even uh, take over Babylon and set up his his own system there in Babylon. And because that was the the occult city, that was the central city of the system of, of absolute power under the Pontifex Maximus or the Hierophant. So ultimately, Alexander the Great died. I think he was what 33 years old. He was probably poisoned, and uh, his kingdom was split into four parts. And um, ultimately. The, the, the Greek Empire would last and reign until the rise of the Roman Empire. So at that time, the, the, the Empire would rise under the, as we had said, under the Senate, the rule of the Senate, and each new territory that was conquered would eventually be built up and have a representative and have a senator that was sent back to Rome and would appeal to Rome, the center city, for, for more you know, things that needed to be done and represented the will of the people and the administration of the empire in that sector. And ultimately, just like Alexander the Great, the rise of Julius Caesar into this ultimate position of the Pontifex Maximus or the priest king or the, the hierophant, the ultimate imperator, the emperor, if you will, this was the pattern of Nimrod that was established over time. And so Julius Caesar would step into this role also and take control of the entire government of Rome onto himself and would pass down this di dictatorship and this 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 uh, sigil, this insignia, and this priestcraft of the Pontifex Maximus down to the the successors after him, the emperors who would come after him would also carry this title. And ultimately we need to understand the esoteric doctrine that accompanies it. And it has to do with Janus and Sybil, which are really the, the counterpart gods, the male and female counterpart. And like we saw in Egypt, we had Isis and Osiris. And uh, in Babylon, we had Baal and Ashtaroth. And, and, and so in, in different languages and different cultures would have a different um, permutation of this pagan deity worship and this pagan ritualism. But ultimately, it extended down through time. And we can see that in the Bible, the, uh, the God of the Bible, Jehovah, if you will, um, would, would, would set up his worship to be separate and apart from this 
worship where they would worship the stars and they would use astrology and they would use sorcery. Ultimately, the God of Israel would establish his people of Israel in a totally different way and under a totally different covenant and under the Ten Commandments. So this conflict between the God of the Bible and the writings of the prophets of the Bible and, and David and Goliath and Moses and the Ten Commandments, this one religious ethic was in contrast and opposed, diametrically opposed to the system of religious occultism and paganism that was set up in Egypt and Babylon and extended down through time. And ultimately we saw that Alexander the Great was a student of it, and so was Julius Caesar. So in order to talk more more intelligently about the Pontifex Maximus, we have this interesting little academic study. It's just a short little clip, and it's I think it's um, backed by a university here. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating uh, understanding and breakdown of the title Pontifex Maximus on an academic level. So let's give it a listen. In 63 BCE, at the age of 36, Julius Caesar shocked everybody by announcing that he was running for the office of Pontifex Maximus. He was still a minor political figure. He had not yet served his term as preacher. He took on massive debts in order to finance this campaign. And when his political elders tried to convince him to get out of the race, he redoubled his efforts and threw himself even further into debt. On election day, according to Plutarch, Caesar told his mother something along the lines of, Today, you will either see me as Pontifex Maximus or go into exile. He won a close three-way race. This electoral victory would have repercussions for centuries. So what was the Pontifex Maximus? Let's put it in the simplest possible terms. He was the highest elected religious official in the Roman Republic, and once elected, he served for life. You'll notice that I threw a caveat in there, elected. Maybe it won't surprise you to learn that it gets more complicated when you look into it. There was one person that outranked the Pontifex Maximus. He was called the Rex Sacrorum, which is deceptively hard to say. It means something like the King of the Sacred. Once appointed, he also served for life, kinda. The Rex Sacrorum was actually itself a split position, consisting of a husband and wife team. The wife was called the Virgina Sacrorum, and she had duties separate from her husband. One could not exist without the other, so if one of the two died or the couple got divorced, the position was vacant and a new couple was appointed. The official job of the Rex and Regina Sacrorum was to keep the gods happy. Full stop, that's it. What that meant in practice was that they were each responsible for performing many complicated religious ceremonies, including animal sacrifices. They also had to live a pure life, which meant a lot of things, but most importantly, it meant that politics and the military were completely off-limits. The Rex Sacrorum was undeniably a powerless figurehead. But let's put that to the side. Let's look at the Pontifex Maximus's actual responsibilities. I'd say his most meaningful job was regulating public morality. He was a watchdog over the Roman people and, more importantly, over its politicians. He had the power to unilaterally issue fines whenever he decided that somebody violated a religious custom or a cultural taboo. Along the same lines, he was also authorized to go before the Senate and speak on legislation representing a group called the College of Pontiffs. What was the College of Pontiffs? 
This was a group of pontiffs, or priests, that met with the Pontifex Maximus behind closed doors to vote on new laws that would govern religious life or public morality. It's important to note that once these laws were agreed upon and publicly announced by the Pontifex Maximus, they had the force of law, and the Senate had no say in the matter. In the beginning, there were five in the college, later nine, and by the late Republic, fifteen. These pontiffs had some other duties, like serving as judges in religious court cases, although it's unclear how common this was. Their most important job was becoming experts on Roman religious law and guiding the Pontifex Maximus. Keep in mind that these pontiffs were expected to have normal political careers, and their role on the College of Pontiffs was kind of a side gig. Just like the Pontifex Maximus, pontiffs served for life. When a pontiff died, the college voted internally to select his replacement. New pontiffs were usually picked from prominent families at a young age and trained on the job by their colleagues. Briefly, in the late Republic, new pontiffs were elected by the people, but that reform didn't last long. The Pontifex Maximus also oversaw a group called the Flamen. These men were also priests, but appointed directly by the Pontifex Maximus for life. There were 15 of them, each the head of a cult devoted to a different deity. The Flamen to Jupiter, Mars, and Romulus were the three most prestigious ones, and were usually given to members of prominent families. Unlike the pontiffs, Flamen were subject to a litany of religious restrictions. For example, it was forbidden for them to see a dead body, or to travel outside of Rome. This meant that while they were technically allowed to have political careers, all of the good stuff was off-limits. Also, they weren't allowed to see a table without food on it, which might be the world's worst superpower. I can't decide if it would be more annoying to know a Flamen, or to be a Flamen. The Pontifex Maximus was also responsible for appointing Vestal Virgins, which was an order of women that maintained an eternal flame in the center of the city. These were easily the most powerful women in Rome. They could own property, vote, and even free slaves at will. Each one was appointed for 30 years, but most chose to stay on after their time was up. The Pontifex Maximus worked right next door to the Temple of Vesta in a building called the Regia, which had once been the site of the royal palace during the monarchy. This was where the College of Pontiffs met. It's also where Rome housed its official calendar, which was so broken that the Pontifex Maximus needed to manually add days to the end of every year in order for it to make sense. This was also where Rome's most sacred artifacts were kept. Perhaps most famous were the Spears of Mars, which were said to vibrate whenever Rome was about to befall some disaster. We're told that Caesar saw them vibrating the night before his own assassination. Speaking of which, after Caesar's assassination, one of his deputies, Lepidus, was elected the new Pontifex Maximus. This same Lepidus became the junior member of the Second Triumvirate, with Octavian and Mark Antony. After Octavian became the Emperor Augustus and consolidated power, he forced Lepidus to move to the countryside, where he retained his title but no influence. Years later, when Lepidus died of old age, the office passed to Augustus without much fuss, and the headquarters of the Pontifex Maximus quietly moved from the Regia to the new Imperial Palace, and for the next 400 years, that's where it stayed.
So that's the conclusion of that very interesting little piece of history. And this is how we need to go forward to try to establish for you what is really happening in the background of the Vatican as we sit here and going into 2021. We're now in December 2020, and as we move forward in history um, towards that really epic date of uh, 2033, in uh, approximately 13 years, we will find out that history moves in huge cycles, and this is an, not an accident. And ultimately, um, in, in 1933, we were looking at uh, World War II and the collapse of our gold currency and uh, in the middle of the Great Depression. So we'll see what happens um, in this century. And ultimately, you can see that the title of Pontifex Maximus was very important in the pagan and uh, esoteric courts of Rome. So all of their different titles and their modes of operation for their government were headed by people who were basically priests over one mythology or pagan deity or another. And ultimately, this title Pontifex Maximus passed to Augustus Caesar and was a, a title, an occult priest title that was attached to each subsequent Roman Caesar afterwards. And so I'm just going point by point here and trying to establish in history what exactly was the thinking and the purpose of the the process of accumulating power. So ultimately, this is the same title in honor that uh, Alexander the Great was trying to establish from himself. Also, when he set up his throne there in Babylon, they were directing their attention toward this college of pontiffs towards this title of Pontifex Maximus when you were the, the grand hierophant, when you were the, the high priest and king over the old system of pagan ideology that had come from the, the prehistoric past. And so that's why we can see it contrasted uh, in history there in the Bible so that the, the, the worship of Yahweh there in Israel in the temple of Solomon was a spe- in Jerusalem was a spe- especially unique and separated religious system that was monotheistic and spoke of a creator God who had created the world and destroyed it in a flood with his anger and had set up and blessed the people of Israel to be his chosen people and his chosen city in Jerusalem and that and with Ten Commandments of Moses and that's really where you get the religion of Judeo-Christianity today and that was a very singular singular flame among all the, the world's uh, flames of religion at that time that surrounded Israel there in Judea. So you're talking about all around Babylon, Persia, Egypt, all the, uh, in Assyria, Mesopotamia, all the surrounding kingdoms, um, including the Philistines who worshipped a male and female God and had blood rituals and human sacrifice. Um, this was the tribe of Goliath. And David and Goliath had their proverbial fight, uh, Goliath being the giant of the Philistines. And this goes back to the Nephilim, uh, the, the men of huge stature that go back to Nimrod and to the pharaohs and to this system of ancient religio-cultic magic and sorcery. And so ultimately, the armies of David would fight against the Philistines and fought against this, this foreign god of Baal. And Ashtaroth being the uh, the feminine counterpart of that deity. And in uh, Egypt, it was the same cult again, as we said, it was Osiris and Isis. And ultimately, m- many centuries later in Rome, it was represented, that system of Babylonian paganism was represented by Janus and Sybil. And ultimately, that was the, the title of uh, high priest of Pontifex Maximus that Julius Caesar found was so necessary in cobbling together the 
the dictatorship, the occult throne of power that he was attempting to establish and ultimately did establish, and being the imperator and the, the emperor and the king over all Rome. In the interest of making sure that we fully establish the point here, we'll do another excerpt too from another very interesting uh, educational documentary that's going to really discuss the uh, the information and um, and uh, go into detail. And just as we learned that the Rex Sacrorum really represented this male-female duality uh, in the deities of black and white symbolism in the occult, we'll under we understand that it was the singular office of Pontifex Maximus, which was the high priest and king over the ancient esoteric cult that was the uh, role that Julius Caesar fought so hard to establish for himself. And ultimately, Augustus Caesar fought ultimately to have uh, brought into his into into the naming of his titles also over time, and that's how we end up seeing it being passed down generational through the succession of the Babylonian cult system, and ultimately the the, the title Pontifex Maximus would become the title of the High Priest of Rome, who ultimately is the Pope of Rome today. Let's take a look at this interesting little educational clip that we have here, and it's if you want to look up this particular individual. He's on YouTube as The Religion Teacher. This clip was put out on December 12th, 2012, and it has a lot of interesting background information in details about the title Pontifex Maximus. If you ever visit Rome, you'll notice a number of the buildings and statues there have an abbreviation Pont Max. So here's the front or the facade of St. Peter's Basilica, and you'll see there Pont Max referring to the Pope. Here's Trevi Fountain, which again has that abbreviation, except just Pon Max, again referring to Pontifex Maximus. Here is just inside the Pantheon is a insignia for Pope Pius IX with Pontifex Maximus abbreviating his title. And this is actually the, in the Roman ruins near the temple of the the Vestal Virgins, and it is the house of Pontifex Maximus, or the High Priest of Rome. Pontifex Maximus is a title that actually predates the Pope by a number of years. It literally means highest bridge maker. It refers to the High Priest of Rome. The highest bridge maker is the person who would bridge the heavens and the earth. It became the title for Roman emperors with Caesar Augustus, and prior to that it was an elected office that Julius Caesar held as well. Well, around the 3rd century, bishops began to be referred to as pontifex or, or priests. And sometime around the 5th century, maybe before, Pope Leo the Great was given the title pontifex maximus, and it was no longer given to the Roman emperor or political roles. Prior to that, in, in ancient Rome, people were forced to worship the emperor as a uh, god, and the title Pontifex Maximus only led to that people believing that he was a god and a very high priest. So the church took on the title Pontifex, or Pontiff, as we refer to it in English. And so today the Pope is referred to as the Roman Pontiff, or in Latin, Pontifex, or Pontifex Maximus. And thus that's the reason why Pope Benedict XVI chose the Twitter handle.
Pontifex. So we'll just conclude it like that, and it's a short little clip. And the uh, the, the whole point of the, the making that demonstration is that it's kind of hard for the historian there being probably apologetic of the Vatican uh, clergy there, the Vatican hierarchy, it has a hard time kind of stumbling over himself to explain how the pagan high priest title ends up over with the uh, so-called Christian popes and where that really begins to change. And what I'm trying to demonstrate here today is that the title of Pontifex Maximus and the, and the role of the high priest of Rome never changed, but simply their PR, their public relations, their propaganda, uh, making them uh, having these superimposed iconographic images. So they have these iconic images of Christianity uh, and um, the paintings of the crucifix and, and so on that are going to really overlay the pagan high priest occult system, which remains unchanged. So as you watch the rituals and as you watch the, 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 how they do candles and how they do um, the incense and how they do their, their altar worship with the... Um, the different instruments um, there in Rome, in the Vatican, you're really observing the distilled ritualistic program of Babylon played out on really unchanged. And so there's really nothing Christian about the Vatican or about the, the role of the high priest, the Pope of Rome and the Pontifex Maximus. It's really just our opinion of them and their ability to syncretize their occult system with the Christian world. So it's really the Christian message and the Christian gospel that changed. And now we have the externalization of the hierarchy and the seeker doctrine is really simply the exposure of the high priest of Babylon uh, there being worshipped as a deity as supposedly the vicar of Christ or sitting as the vicarious uh, enthronement of the man Jesus Christ in his place since apparently Jesus Christ took off to heaven so now the uh, the seat of Peter or the seat of Jupiter is now um, going to be taken over by this Pontifex Maximus character and all has all authority on earth and takes unto himself the authority to determine what is the truth or what is true Bible history or if we want to merge all religions of Islam and Buddhism and uh, of Jesus Christ all into in Mormonism all into one cult system it's all just uh, fine with them then he signs off and, and he supposedly has this authority to make these religious determinations and that's really what we're getting out here today. And as we kind of move our examination forward it becomes clear that the figure of the Messiah of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, would appear in Bethlehem, not on December 25th, which is crucial to understand that, that the Bible is, is pretty adamant in all its detail that there, there was no way that the birth of Christ took place anywhere near December. So we need to establish that. No, no time in winter at all. But ultimately, what's happening at the time that um, Jesus Christ is born and comes into the picture in the land of Judea and Galilee is that the once free kingdom of, of Judah of, of, and in Jerusalem, the kingdom of Israel, if you will, is starting to be, be imposed upon by the imperial tyranny of Rome. So uh, Rome, Roman power has grown so great and so wide and marvelous that it, it really controls many regions like Babylon and Egypt. And, uh, and, and ultimately, you'll see Mark Anthony later would go down to Egypt and destroy the navy of Cleopatra and take over the kingdom of Egypt and, and basically control the power there under Rome. 
And in the same way at this time, and uh, when it's the advent of Jesus Christ in history and 33 years that he would live on the earth, we would see that the power of Rome was beginning to increasingly impose with its legions on the area of Judea. And at first, this is kind of like a diplomatic measure. It's like a diplomatic mission. And there's this kind of relationship with diplomatic ties between Rome and the kingdom of Israel. And But ultimately, Rome would get their own king, their own uh, the king of their particular political persuasion in the person of Herod. And Herod was a pro-Roman king. And ultimately, he, a lot of things would change under Herod. Uh, the Roman money, the denarius, the Roman coins were beginning to flow throughout the area. Probably there were Roman guards guarding the different roads um, and kind of imposing their authority in the area and becoming part of the, the the construct of the civil life in Judea. And ultimately, you would see the, the figure of the governor of the region, Pontius Pilate, would be begin to, you know, become a representative of Rome over the area. So Judea isn't strictly a part of the Roman Empire, but was being administered as an outlying territory in the person of Pontius Pilate. So there's a lot of political pressures taking place on, on Israel at the time because they're ultimately, you know, decade by decade losing their political independence and their political sovereignty and ultimately they have this temple in Jerusalem where they have the worship of the Most High God so that Yahweh Jehovah God of the Israelites is a system of religion that was ancient in the eyes of Julius Caesar and went back all the way to the time of the Babylonian and the Assyrians and they were very careful about how they entreated with Israel and ultimately they did impose their hegemony over the city of Jerusalem and, it, and its temple and was totally destroyed and sacked by the armies of Rome under General Titus. It was something that was prophesied by Jesus Christ. If you read the uh, the Gospels, it talks about how he predicted that this temple, that the stones of the temple could be cast down and destroyed in a very short time. Important to remember what's called the first Roman Jewish war and the what's described as the revolt of the Maccabees in, in 167 BC when the uh, the authorities of Rome attempted to erect an eagle over the temple gateway a, an, idolatr- an idolatrous symbol in the eyes of the Jewish men at the time and they went to war to make sure that there wouldn't be any of those images erected in their temple so there was this kind of underlying um, instability in the region over the purity of the Jewish temple and ultimately this was going to come into conflict with the authority of Pax Romana, which considered that it had the right to come in and conquer and take control of any kingdom or authority structure or any particular religious cult system in the world was to be directed and to be under the governorship and the authority of the, uh, the Empire of Rome. So they didn't really view the, the existence of the, this ancient Jewish kingdom as having any particular right to have independence from their authority, their imperial authority. And ultimately, that's what the conflict was all about. That's why you had Pontius Pilate in Rome. That's why you had Roman denarius, and you had centurions that spoke with Jesus Christ, who were, you know, who were really just white men from, from Italy, from Rome. And you you have to understand this underlying power structure that's this being coming into the world. 
at the time when Jesus Christ makes his appearance and ultimately dies on a, a Roman crucifixion stake. It's important to show this confederacy between the elite aristocracy in in Jerusalem and Israel at the time who were over the temple functions and how they're really the government of, of Jerusalem is corrupt and the kingdom is really a servant of Rome and you have this new governor in the region in the person of Pontius Pilate and how there's this confederacy between Rome and the elite in the government of uh, Jerusalem that are giving up and basically betraying the sovereignty of their government and betraying the people of Israel by beginning to be bought out and corrupted by the political and economic wealth and power that's coming from Rome. So ultimately they're going to sell out the people and ultimately they're going to, to give away the sovereignty and the power of their of their God and sell out to the Roman gods. And that's really what we're seeing, which is a replay of what happened with Babylon again. So ultimately Jesus Christ is confronting this whole system at a time in history which really can't be hidden. So all across the empire, the records and the news reports and the the, uh, the journalism articles of different historians are recording all these events. And Jesus Christ had reached such widespread fame across the entire region that many people were coming into Passover at the time that he was visiting, at the, the time when he died, so that the city was full. It was full more than at any other time in, in, in previous years. It was it was more full at that Passover of, of travelers and people that were coming to the area because of such the popularity and the renown of this man called Jesus Christ. And he was coming there and, and, and his travels um, you know, with his disciples to confront the religious system of Roman corruption that was really poisoning the, the Sanhedrin and poisoning the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and creating this corruption and sellout so that the economic freedom of the people was gone. And there was much poverty and the people were really starving. So um, that's why it's interesting that we, we see him confronting this system on a Passover when the world was all watching. And so that ultimately the day that he was died, you know, it was crucified on Passover was something that was an epic part of history that can't really be ever erased. So Jesus Christ was making his mark on history so that we know that it's the year 2020 because 2020 years ago, 2021 years ago, Jesus Christ confronted the system of Roman and Jewish corruption and idolatry. And uh, it was ultimately how Israel itself would become a component and be submitted by the domination the Roman armies taking place at a time when the world empire was being taken over by the dictatorship of the Pontifex Maximus. And this was the, the person that Jesus Christ was confronting and the authority that he was confronting in Pontius Pilate because Pontius Pilate was there to wield the authority of Julius Caesar or Pontifex Maximus. In this case, if it was Tiberius Caesar at the time who was actually on the throne in Rome as Caesar, it's really beside the point. The point is it was the dictatorship established by Julius Caesar that, that Jesus Christ was confronting. And he, he even had them held up, held up a coin and they said, whose coin, whose face is on the coin? And they said it was Caesar's. And he said, well, and he differentiated between the two and said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And, he, and he's making a difference and, and separating the two things and making the point that they can't be made one. Julius Caesar can't become a deity and Pontifex Maximus down through the, the course of time cannot ultimately be a, a real authority associated with God. 
So the divinity of Pharaoh and the, the occult throne of Alexander the Great and the power of Pontifex Maximus from Babylon can only be considered to be the the power of Antichrist, the Antichrist power. And that's what Jesus Christ is pointing out when he when they hold up the money. So it's pretty a powerful uh, imagery that he's, and very simple imagery. When you hold up the money and you look at the, the face of the power that's thereof, is it Pontifex Maximus? So in order to really elaborate these points further about the corruption of the, the Jewish state under Rome, let's listen to this fascinating interview here. Public and the further disintegration of the rulership of Jerusalem and Judea and the corruption of the temple worship there and also the rise of the Edomites. The cult of Mithra was increasing its influence in the Roman Republic, and this was no doubt through Pergamum, which the Republic had acquired earlier. And around Pergamum was a region known as Phrygia, named after a people called the Phrygians. And not much is known about the Phrygians. Their name may actually be connected to the city. It's a form of Pergamum. And they were known in ancient accounts to have possibly come from Thrace in Greece, northern Greece. And they were connected to Troy. There's not much known about them. What is known, what's best known about them is they're connected to the legendary King Midas. And they were also known for the Phrygian cap, which they gave their name to. And this cap was later known as the Liberty Cap. And this cap was associated with the cult of Mithra. There are actually depictions of Mithra wearing the Phrygian cap. And this cap is also seen in images going back as far as the Assyrian Empire. The Phrygians were known to worship the god Attis and the goddess Sibyl. Sibyl is the form of the goddess Ishtar, a fertility goddess. And Julius Caesar of Rome had claimed that he was descended from Sibyl. She was known to the Romans as Venus and was believed to be descended from Semiramis, who was known to be the wife of Nimrod. Julius Caesar was most likely initiated into the mysteries, and he took the title Pontifex Maximus, which had been a title in Pergamum and was known to be used as far back as Babylon. And he also carried the keys of Sibyl and the god Janus, which was a god that goes all the way back to Mesopotamia, which could be the god Oanes. As Pontifex Maximus, he was higher than all the pontiffs and augurs of Rome, and he was known to wear a scarlet robe and a mitre in the shape of a fish's head, as it had been done as far back as Babylon, and he was also known to carry the scepter of Asclepius, Asclepius Soter, Soter means savior or the healer, and this scepter was a rod with two snakes entwining it, and that symbol is widely known as a medical symbol of medical professions today. And a lot of members of different ruling families were almost certainly initiated into the mysteries, like Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great before him. And the ruling families were all interconnected through marriage and cult practices, and they claimed to be descended from different gods and figures of mythology, but there was some basis in fact. But their genealogies were just strange. I won't go into exactly who they were descended from, but they had strange beginnings, and they weren't exactly who they appeared to be or who they sometimes said they were. And I'll just quickly add that the name Julius Caesar could very well be translated as Lucifer Horn. The name Caesar is just a word for spear or horn, and Julius is a family name which could be connected to the word Yule, which is a Norse word for bright, shining, light, and the family name Julius could come from the cities of Tyre and Sidon, where there was a king, Elulias or Luli, 
And Luli is connected to a Semitic word for bright, shining, boastful, loud. And that word has been translated as Lucifer. So Julius Caesar was certainly in contact with ruling families in Palestine, including the ruling families of the Edomites. And they were a mixture of different people through intermarriage. They were known as olives, which is a Semitic word for like a duke, some kind of ruler. And they were certainly involved in the mystery religions also. An Edomite Jew named Antipater was a good soldier, and he served the Hasmonean dynasty. And his son, also named Antipater, served the Hasmonean dynasty, and he also served the Romans Julius Caesar and Pompey in their campaigns. And he was not only a good soldier, but also a good politician and diplomat. These skilled Edomite soldiers had a shadowy ancestry, and even in their own time, it wasn't certain what it was. There were a few traditions. One said they were a prominent Jewish family from the Babylonian exile, and another said they were temple slaves in the temple of Apollo at the Philistine city of Ashkelon. Julius Caesar invaded Palestine, and in 47 BC, he made the Edomite Jew Antipater procurator of Judea. Julius Caesar then appointed Antipater's son Herod as the military prefect of Galilee, and Herod was so good at that that he was then promoted as the military prefect of Coela, Syria, which is just the coastal part of Syria. The name Herod is just a Greek name, and it roughly means appearance of a hero or manifestation of a hero. But then there was a civil war in the Roman Republic, and the Parthians used this as an opportunity to invade Palestine. And they set up the Hasmonean ruler Antigonus on the throne of Judea in 40 B.C., in response, Herod's friend Mark Anthony convinced the Roman Senate to name Herod the king of the Jews, and Herod began a campaign against Antigonus for the throne of Judea, and it took Herod three years, and he was able to become ruler of Judea. After this, Herod was called a loyal friend and ally of Rome, and he was known in history as Herod the Great, and he began a long reign which started the Herod dynasty, and that included several Herods. Herod the Great killed off many remaining members of the Hasmonean dynasty to eliminate all opposition. For this he was despised by most Jews, and he was also despised because he was an Edomite Jew and not considered a real Jew, so he made attempts to win back their favor. He married the Hasmonean Mary Amni so that some of his children would at least be part Jewish. He was threatened again in 31 BC when Cleopatra, the Ptolemaic queen of Egypt, threatened to recover lands in Syria and Palestine for Egypt, but she was defeated at the Battle of Actium. Then in 29 BC, he even murdered his wife Mary Amni. It's interesting that in this same year, a temple was built in Pergamum to honor Rome and Octavian, who was now made Caesar Augustus, and this is where emperor worship began. Herod the Great most likely helped finance the temple at Pergamum, and in 19 BC he began the restoration of the temple at Jerusalem, and this was to gain more favor with the Jews. He also rebuilt Samaria and renamed it Sebast, which is just the Greek word for Augustus, but he also built many pagan temples as far as Athens. He took over control of the Sanhedrin, and he also took control of appointing the chief priests and the high priests, and he favored the Pharisees, and he probably appointed many Pharisees into important priest positions, and there arose a sect called the Herodians that were in favor of Herod, and many Pharisees were included in this sect. There were many scribes also included in the Pharisees, and they claimed authority in interpreting the Bible. 
The only thing that is absolutely certain on what defined a Pharisee is that they all believed in an afterlife. But other than that, there were different beliefs and factions within the Pharisees. They had a fair amount of political power and connections to Herod, but they still didn't have much control over the temple or the income from the temple services. That was still controlled by the temple oligarchy. And they looked back to the command of God for the priesthood to actually be the whole nation, everyone in the nation. And they considered the temple oligarchy as tyrannical, and they also despised the rulership of an outside power like Rome. So it becomes obvious that the temple system was a cash cow, and there were schemes to control the wealth coming from it. And it looks like Herod and the Pharisees made up one side trying to get more of the wealth coming from the temple, and the oligarchy of the Sadducees and the elites of Jerusalem were on the other side trying to maintain their wealth from it. The position of high priest was very important. The high priest was pretty much next to the ruler. The high priest could raise taxes, they could appoint positions, they had a lot of power in the Sanhedrin and the ruling council. There were certain laws about who could serve as high priest according to bloodline and also as the chief priests, and even down to the lowest duties in the temple services. There were disputes about just what the law said about who could serve, and it's not clear, and I won't go into it here, it's very complicated from what the Bible says about who could actually serve as a priest. A system of synagogues developed across the Roman Empire, and it appears that the Pharisees used this to increase their power as a counter to the temple system at Jerusalem. Now, it's often taught that the Romans wanted to destroy the temple, but there is some evidence that the Romans actually benefited from the temple and did not want to destroy it. They were receiving some of the wealth from it. Now, they may have been trying to increase their wealth from it, and working with the Edomite Herod and possibly the Pharisees, now, Herod and the Pharisees may not have minded if the temple were destroyed because they weren't receiving too much wealth from it. They were trying to change that. But they might have been able to benefit even with the temple gone. The Sadducees and oligarchy of Jerusalem would have wanted to keep the temple. And the Pharisees and Sadducees may have been working with the Essenes either for or against the temple. There was a lot of strife and intrigue within the family of Herod. And Herod the Great himself died in 4 B.C., there arose another sect called the Zealots. They were for the violent overthrow of the Roman control of Palestine. They were founded by Judas the Galilean, who is mentioned in the Bible. There was a revolt in 6 AD, which was crushed by the Romans. Then Jesus came into this situation offending just about everybody. He superseded the authority of the scribes and Pharisees. He denounced the money changers and the wealth systems of the temple services. He threatened the overthrow of the rulership of Judea. And he would not go along with calls for the violent overthrow of the Roman control and the control of Herod. And also he brought up a radical idea, which it seems that nobody had thought of, that the temple was actually the body and not the building itself. That is really a fascinating look into the background history of what was going on at the time. And to, to point out that all the different surrounding cultures and governments and nations surrounding Israel were all pagan um, systems of idolatry. And they probably looked at Israel and, and their God as if it was something uh, that, that was, you know, erroneous. Um, but ultimately, and maybe the men of Rome believed in Jupiter and in Venus and, and believed in their gods. And ultimately, they didn't, maybe they looked down on the God of Israel, but Israel had 
the, the system of its own history, its own scripture, and the miraculous signs and wonders that were at work within their system of worship, and they were not giving it up. The people were not going to ultimately turn towards these these pagan systems of, of religion. So that's how you end up with war. And I really want to point out here that it was Julius Caesar who kind of fell in on this trend of, of emperor worship. And that's what you see, you know, the theme over and over again, kind of the process of world empire, world imperium, and then the seat of ultimate power in the person of uh, the Pontifex Maximus, if you will, the person who will ultimately be the, the king and priest and receive worship as if he is divine. And ultimately, Julius Caesar tried to make this case in pointing out that he believed that his ancestors were from Venus. And so ultimately, the, the, the gods, the, the bloodline of the gods was ultimately in his veins and he was divine. And so he, his image began to replace some of the statuary and some of the idols that were worshipped and people would go into the temple and spend their money and make um, sacred oaths and do certain rituals in order to placate these gods. And ultimately, Julius Caesar wanted to join the pantheon of gods and, and become divine in himself in the person of his own authority. And so we see this trend being developed in the ecclesiastical ambitions and avarice of the Pope of Rome. The singular pastor, the singular seat of, of a ministry of the Christian church who, in some theurgic controversy, decides to say that he has authority over all other governments and all other churches in the world and that all men should recognize his divine power because he is some kind of a bridge maker. And this really takes us back to Nimrod and Babel. And Babel, if you translate it, means uh, Babel, means uh, the gateway of God or, you know, the bridge to God. So the, the man. Man who stands as the link between earth and heaven. And ultimately, this is the embodiment of the Pharaoh of Egypt who received worship and uh, was considered a god. And this is ultimately the role that the Pope of Rome is trying to play when he wears his mitre and carries around his, his staff and has a throne and sits up on his little pillow and his little slippers and, 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 and all the presidents and kings of the world have to dress funny and stand before him and shake his hand. And he has this pretended geopolitical power and we're trying to give you an idea of where he gets that from and, and on a cold level and the esoteric fraternities and the uh, the ancient orders of papal knights that are 500 years old and, and that, you know, they understand that the papal power is resting in an occult throne in an ancient brotherhood of magic and sorcery that is very dangerous and ultimately um, kills people that, that don't obey it and kills the leaders of the world who won't submit to its power. That's what we see happening again and again. And ultimately, this power during the Middle Ages would control kings. And if you didn't want to kiss the ring of the Pope then and recognize his absolute power and submit to his authority as the sovereign of heaven, you could find yourself not only canceled, like cancel culture, but you could find yourself burned alive and your entire family with it. So, you know, to, 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 to in order to be in good with God and to be observing proper religion, you had to submit to the absolute authority of, of the Pope. This is called the doctrine of the temporal power 
of the Pope. And of course, he he claims to have spiritual power and able to like call, cause heaven to do the things that he wants and to command heaven. And he also uh, claims to have temporal power on earth to command the kings and the princes and the armies of the world, and that everyone should obey his his authority that is supposedly established in Christ. But if we look closely here, we're going to find out that the authority of the Pope is not established in Christ at all. I think it's clear that we're just going to end up in a second episode of this particular subject matter because I have a lot more that I can really introduce into the into the discussion. But I really I have a really interesting book right now that was written in 1862. And it's a book called Rome, Antichrist, and the Papacy, being a series of letters addressed to Dr. Manning. So this is going to be a book in uh, 1862 by Dr. Edward Harper. Uh, it was digitized on March 11, 2013 and published in 1862. So let's give this, um, we need to really take an interesting look at this this book. And I go to this subsection here, part 403, and I want to return, uh, just read a little bit. And these functions are just the same as those of the man of sin and the Antichrist, which clearly proves that the power represented under these latter names is not so much as simple, but is a single individual, a successive head of a kingdom which is not yet brought to a close. Through Nebuchadnezzar was told, though Nebuchadnezzar was told by Daniel that he was the golden head of the image, in the dream, future kings of Babylon were likewise. The kingdoms of Medo-Persia and Greece had several representatives, and the Roman kingdom, being the most prolonged of all, had more than all these. The little horn of the fourth beast was likewise a single individual, a power, a sovereignty derived from that old serpent, the devil. And all that was wicked and idolatrous and bloodthirsty in their consecutive kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and, and Imperial Rome found an embodiment in the system of so-called religion and papal Rome, of which this Antichrist was the head. The care which Rome papal Rome has taken to prove herself the legitimate daughter and successor of pagan Rome is wonderful. The pretense, I know, is that paganism having expelled the seat and empire of the Caesars were handed over to be so-called vicar of Christ. But the fact is that a very thin, gilded surface of Christianity was laid over the festering corruptions of pagan idolatry. And Rome, instead of benefiting by the change, became sevenfold more the child of hell than before. She became the seat, not of Christianity, but its counterfeit. She was not the mother and mistress of all churches, or like a bride of Christ, but she was the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. The earthly plenipotentiary of Satan, in the person of Antichrist, governed the Roman kingdom. The renegade bishop of Rome became the Pontifex Maximus of his day, the son of perdition, who showed the faith of Christianity as his prototype, sold his master for money, showed himself in a temple dedicated nominally to Christian worship, as if he were God himself. The easy transition, this is part 405, the easy transition of Rome from paganism to popery must be apparent to all men. The thing which you can call the Church of Rome is paganism leavened with pseudo-Christianity. I could fill several letters with proofs and signs of the identity of popery with heathenism, past, present, but space and time forbid. See, however, paragraphs 150 through 152, the old pagan priesthood of, of emperor worship and emperor imperialism are plainly perpetuated in your present Pontifex Maximus, who is the living head of the Babylon, Babylon the Great. And that office of anti-Christian blasphemies, as it is, is derived from the, one of the rankest posures ever consummated in the world of wickedness. So we'll just leave it there. That's an interesting, it goes on to talk about the decretals of Rome and the forgery of the donation of Constantine. But like I said, this, this episode has gotten pretty long. So we'll go back and do another episode, part two on this later. Thanks for listening.